You're listening to BQN. Assimilate the audio. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of All Good Things, the Star Trek Universe podcast here on BQN and the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and with me today are Christos, live from Ryza, and Calvin. Hey, guys. Hey, Mark. How are you? Doing great today, but obviously not as great as you. Oh, nice Horgon statue next to you. That's that's awesome. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> going well. Uh, well, we'll see. The day, the day, I got the whole day open. We'll see what happens. <laughs> you gonna, are you going to lay out by the pool with your book and just wait? Or uh, <laughs> you're going to walk around and, and bingle? It may lay out by the pool with grinder. It's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Calvin, how's it going with you? You got some snow over there? Hello, hello, hello. Um, I'm not coming to you live from Riser. I'm from a cold and wet Manchester, as per usual. Uh, but yeah, I wish I was tossing my hover ball over to get uh, Christos's attention if he's waving his riser, but uh, <laughs> waving his hog on. No, not for me. Uh, a cold and wet one, but uh, very happy to see both of you guys here today. Happy to see yeah, you I too. Think maybe for the listeners, for the listeners' benefit, I'm in Hawaii for a week for work and, and a little play, but um, <clears throat> with a nice change of pace. Considering um, yesterday morning when I left San Diego, it was literally 40 degrees outside, and um, when I landed in Hawaii, it was 81. So it's a nice little swing Woo-hoo. there. Literally, was taking layers off at the airport. Oh, that's the dream. <laughs> well, guys. Uh... <laughs> We didn't get any feedback for last week's episode, but it looks like we got some uh, delayed feedback on our episode 101, which I actually don't remember the title of that episode, but it, it involved, uh, it was a Christmas special that, you know, involved the Nexus and uh, Generations movie. So, <laughs> Christos, do you want to uh, take off with the feedback? It was definitely our stretch at having a Christmas episode, right? You know, we yeah. tend to like, you know, everyone talks about Generations is the Christmas movie, right? So uh, that would be episode 101 that we're talking about there. And our own BQN um, podcaster, Christy DeClerc-Zalagi, who admits that she was playing catch-up, hence the delayed reaction here. She uh, left us some good feedback here, so I am going to attempt to give it to you in a clear, concise manner. She said, the, the Picard Victorian Christmas with not Beverly and all of that has always bothered me, too. Exactly. And I'll bother that they didn't bring back the kid who played Renee three years earlier for that two minutes and not really important right now. Another good point. However, taking what we learned from Picard season two into account, it makes more sense. I know none of this was on anyone's mind while producing Generations, but let's say they were thinking about explaining it when they were producing Picard season two. I think that's accurate. So for one, it's a fairy tale scene like the stories he and his mother created. Good point. Hmm. Two... It is a complete family, not one, no one is tragically missing, and there are many children, as Maurice and Yvette might have had. Three, everyone is healthy and happy, and happy to, get, happy to be together, something in which we get the distinct impression was not the experience Jean-Luc had after his mother's death. And finally, number four, there are abundance of presents, and they are exactly what the children wanted. Here, it's not so much the quantity but the quality maurice picard does not strike me as much of a gift giver as he probably would go for the practical rather than something to delight a child so the retcon makes it 
worked for me better than just he's thinking about family because Robert and Renee died. If that's what they wanted to do, they just needed to go back and set they used to the set they used to visit the home and family and put everyone around the dinner table. This also explains why his wife isn't Beverly, because the perfect fantasy is not about what he wa- he wants as an adult, but what he didn't have as a child. Hmm. I think I got that out good. Yeah. Yeah, good points, Chrissy. Um, yeah, it was more about putting together, I think, probably that fantasy of what he wanted as a young Picard, that young Picard we saw in season two of Star Trek Picard, and not so much um, wishing that he, Beverly, and the family that we saw in the episode family from season four kind of meshing that together. Yeah. Interesting point. Cause that makes me think of captain Kirk and whether or not that was his adult fantasy to have that farm or if when he was a little kid, he wanted a farm with a horse. Hey Mark, what time is it? I think it's time for all good world. From Las Vegas to Boston, USA to Canada and South America. From the United Kingdom to South Africa, from Russia to Australia, the South Pacific, and beyond, this is All Good World. Each episode, we highlight a different location around the globe where this podcast has reached. Today's episode, we'd love to give a special shout-out to Paraguay. Now, I apologize uh, for mispronouncing some of what I'm about to read, but, you know, it goes it goes with uh, each each week. I always mispronounce something. Uh, officially, the Republic of Paraguay is landlocked is a landlocked country in South America. It is bordered by Argentina to the south and southwest, Brazil to the east and northeast, and Bolivia to the northwest. It has a population of seven million, nearly three million of whom live in the capital and largest city of uh, looks like Asuncion, something like that, I guess, and is Asuncion. Asuncion and is surrounding and its surrounding metro although one of only two landlocked countries in south america bolivia is the other paraguay has ports on the paraguay and is that pinara rivers parana parana rivers uh they give exit to the atlantic ocean through the uh parana Paraguay waterway. So that is interesting. It's completely landlocked, yet it does still have a port that exits in the Atlantic. So hello to our Paraguay listeners. It's great to have you. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Calvin, uh, what are we going to be talking about this week? Right. So this week we are continuing our Shuttlecraft series uh, with the part four. So just to remind the listeners uh, what we've covered so far, we've taken a look at Enterprise's Shuttlepod 1, DS9's Explorers and Discovery's Lethe. So this week it's a Voyager installment and it's time to look at the season six episode Good Shepherd. So just as a little recap into the uh, plot synopsis, we have Seven of Nine's shipwide efficiency report, and she brings to the captain's attention three black sheep crewmen who have slipped through the cracks. We have Mortimer Heron, uh, played by Jay Underwood, who's the overqualified, underly-enthused engineer. We have Tau Celeste, who has no confidence in herself and doesn't really inspire it in others. And finally, William Telfer, uh, who's the resident hypochondriac. 
so seeking to guide her strays back into the flock, Janeway orders them all to join her on an away mission uh, to class a T-class nebula in the Delta Flyer. So uh, anxiety strikes when know-it-all Heron gets sensor data very wrong. Talis so worried about being wrong that she can't get anything right. And an intrusive alien gives Telfer his very first real medical emergency. Thanks, Calvin. So I thought what would be a great way to start this episode is to go through each of our little lower deckers here and learn a little bit about them uh, and discuss their characters a little bit. This is, uh, and I didn't realize until I started the rewatch, I mean, this is a Lower Decks episode, and there's not a ton of those in Star Trek, so it was fun to discover that upon this rewatch. Oh, wait, this is a Lower Decks episode, as well as being a Shuttlecraft episode. When I started rewatching this episode yesterday, uh, first off, I was like, I remembered how much I liked it. I remember watching this episode literally first run. I was very, very much in a mode there during Voyager, like seasons four through seven, miss, not missing an episode every week, watch, you know, and remember liking this one, it really stands out. And it is truly a lower decks episode, which when you look at it that way, and um, I like that, you know, I don't think Voyager did enough of this. I mean, think about it, they had a very unique situation because it was compartmentalized on mm -hmm. Voyager. And they weren't interacting with other Starfleet ships, really, and other things like that, that they literally had 100 plus crew members that they they could have been doing more with. But I only suspect that the reason they didn't was they would have to obviously having keep having those people come back. You can't just keep creating new crew members, right? You'd have to have those actors back week after week after week, kind of in that DS9 format of having this big recurring cap. And they got to pay them more at that point. <laughs> If their characters have names and, and lines and whatnot. Lines. Yeah. Let's start off with Mortimer Heron and talk about him a little bit. So he worked in Voyager's engineering department under Lieutenant Bellana Torres, the chief engineer. However, when she tried to give him responsibility commensurate with his ability, he refused to do the work to her great annoyance. She therefore assigned him to the Plasma Relay room on Deck 15, where his only responsibility was to route power according to Torres' instructions. These instructions were usually carried to him on a pad by a crewman. This was the only time anyone interacted with him. This pleased him greatly. He thus was able to spend almost all of his time alone working on theoretical cosmology calculations, including trying to disprove a standing cosmological theory of multiple big bangs um so what do you guys feel about mortimer heron i didn't warm to this character i had a lot of time for celeste and billy uh but heron was just miserable uh the scene that really stood out for me in particular was the mess hall scene uh with mm. tom and Mama, where tom goes over to talk to him uh tom kind of um, is ribbing Belana a lot about, you know, she's not a caring um, kind of departmental leader. Uh, she's not tried her best with him. And she basically just says, well, you go and speak to him. And <laughs> he, he's awful. He's just a complete jerk. Um, I also like Tom's comeback where he says, uh, oh, oh, I've just invited him to watch TV with us. And you see Belana's jaw hit the floor. But yeah, he's just, <laughs> um, he seems to go out of his way 
to be um, not very likable. It kind of reminded me a little bit about Ensign Rowe's introduction hmm. in TNG, where she sat there in 10 forward and she says, uh, would you like some company? And she just says no, and uh, kind of shoes off Crusher and Troy. But Ensign Rowe was a lot more likable. She was more had more layers to her that we got to understand. And clearly this was just a one-off episode for the character. So who knows who where he would have gone. But yeah, I just didn't like him. Sorry. Do yeah. you guys have uh, yeah. people in your work lives that remind you of Heron? I, I, I see what you're asking there, Mark. The point with Heron is, is like, he would have been transferred off Voyager long before had they mm -hmm. not been transferred. So when people like this pop up in the workplace, usually something changes. They, they leave disciplinary action. You get them into the right area. This is something, it's a matter of, of being stuck with somebody and i think that applies to all three of these characters um what strikes me is like as the viewer watching i already like can kind of watch it and dissect and know what i would do with this person as a leader or a manager whereas like our our hero characters our main cast is struggling i would probably come at trying to figure out a heron more like janeway does mm -hmm. whereas like I guess Bolana is just lacking that leadership skill. Some of this stuff is to the detriment of our main cast because it's like as leaders, they could have done more than obviously they have. Heron is, he's a theorist. He's not an engineer. And it's its black and white in our face. And they wonder why he can't, you know, move from A to B. I guess you need Troy in this episode to kind of help <laughs> a little bit with, with this. I mean, and then we get to see, you know, without getting too far ahead, we get to see him have to apply theory in real life. And yeah. we see some evolution in the character. Yeah, he's literally just, by definition, not an engineer. And we're trying to make him an engineer. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like I'm a doctor. No, I'm not. But because we're stuck out here, I'm the doctor. You know, it, it doesn't always work. Yeah. And to kind of saying. answer your question, Mark, um, I have had people uh, work in my team who are like this who you just can't form a relationship they don't they're not really most engaged but christos is right you either turn a c player into a, an a player or you performance manage them out of the business so either they change or they leave clearly Bellana didn't yeah. have the option of put him off the ship or relieve him of his duties but even if he was just completely wired in a different way she still hasn't done a very good job as a manager to try and put him in a position where he could excel. She has just given him the shittiest job and put him out uh, out of the way, uh, out of sight, out of mind, uh, which is yeah. not really great management skills. Sure, but Bolana, if you remember yeah. from season one, never really... I mean, she, didn't, she wanted out of Starfleet. She joined the Maquis. She only kind of want to be chief engineer because she's you know really good at being chief engineer but she's not really a people person we know that about balana so i wouldn't expect her to be a great manager anyway can i can I, i'm yeah. very passionate about this in the workplace the concept of the accidental manager so basically if, you're, <laughs> if you are a technical expert in your field hmm. of engineering or, or marketing or whatever it is someone usually at board level says hey you know a lot more than other people you can manage this team and managing people is a completely different skill set so just because balana is a great engineer who would have thought she would have been a great manager i would actually say this is a great failing of janeway and chakotay hmm. what do we think of that 
Like I automatically, I can tell you what I would have done. I would have him reassigned to working directly with seven of nine on theories to get Voyager home faster and, and other ways to improve efficiency of Voyager. Like, you know, let him move away from the literal and, and tap into his brain power because maybe he's the one can kind of coming up with, you know, a better propulsion system or ways to enhance the warp drive. But you know what, you know, all that stuff. I think automatically that guy would be better served under working directly under seven because she, they almost speak the same language. You know what I mean? He's, he is kind of like a seven, you know? Yeah. I agree with both of you guys, uh, as far as him being not really the nicest person and being difficult to manage. And you, you know, there's a couple of different things like Christo said, uh, you could take like the Janeway approach, uh, and try to, you know, continue to uh, develop him, or you can try to uh, sort of get him out in some way. Um, but with that said, there was a part of me, a small part of me, maybe like 15% of me, that sort of could see where he was coming from, because that's the same percentage of me that, like, when I come into my office, I, I specifically, I get to the office very early before everybody else because I can sit in the office without anybody chatting and I'm there by myself and I'm just working and it's like this Zen time or I have no other humans and it's my favorite time of the day before everybody else shows up. Uh, and then you get all the personalities you got to deal with and all that. So I kind of can see where you can come from with liking to sort of work in that solitude and like be stuck in that random corridor uh, just waiting for instructions and being able to work on his, his own little side projects, but just the piece of sort of, you know, not having to interact with other people can sometimes be, can sometimes be very nice. <laughs> I don't, I don't think he's a nice person, but there's a part of me that can understand why he likes being where he is. Quite often though, working in that environment can be the detriment to your social skills and clearly he doesn't really engage with people whether whether he wants to work alone like you've just said mark you know yeah. but then when he's sat in the mess hall he doesn't have any friends he doesn't know how to speak to people he's it's quite tragic yeah um, so yeah it's careful what you wish for mm. to tag on to that real quick question before we jump to the next person but how do you guys feel like working alone versus working with a team well, I think you've got, honestly, it kind of comes down to you've got two types of people in the world. You've got extroverts and introverts. And there's all these things in me that scream extrovert. And I like to get out there and I can talk to people. I like to make friends. Yeah. I like to, you know, obviously, I don't think to, to the point of uh, Kelvin made there, like, for example, I would be misplaced as a as a manager if, if I wasn't an extrovert. You have yeah. to be able to have conversations to coach to mentor introverts don't do that you know they're not they're not going to do that so i think that becomes like a little bit like that's a little black and white there because you do have people who fit in all areas of that spectrum and uh people who can be introverted in certain settings and extroverted in others i think that's very typical as well but um, and it's true. I mean, I, I've had people work up for me on my team that are very, 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 very good at their jobs. But, you know, I don't know much about them because socially they don't like to share and you just have to respect those boundaries. Mm. But if they're performing, if they're performing, you just, you know, take it for that and, and work with that. Mm. I've done a lot of kind of um, 
management models and personality profiling in my line of work over the years, I always kind of come out as a bit of a chameleon in that I can apply myself to different settings. So coming back to what you asked Mark about, do we like, how do we feel about working around people, working by ourselves? I think a lot of people have been tested by that during the pandemic mm. of, you know, a traditional office setting, um, you know, with all the water cooler moments and the distractions and, you know, not being able to focus. And then going into lockdown, everybody working from home, there was probably an initial kind of why haven't we been doing this all the time um we don't need all of our office structures office buildings we've got the technology but as the pandemic went on lots of people started experiencing mental health issues of kind of isolation and mm. every interaction with a person was very um artificial you know you had to set up a zoom call or a teams call or whatever software you're using you just didn't get you didn't have people around you and there's you know if people are single living alone don't have flatmates they, you could just go for sometimes days without seeing people i'm one of the people who thought i would love it because i do actually come out in personality profiles as an introvert so i get my energy from being alone uh, and recharging my batteries away from people but after a couple of months of lockdown, I was screaming to get back in the office and I was one of the first people to return. And just having that kind of people in the background, it re really kind of helped me. Uh, just what you were saying there, Christos, about introverts and leaders, you need to make the discrepancy between what is a natural behaviour and what is a learned behaviour. So I'm a, a natural introvert, but I'm a very learned extrovert because I deliver training mm -hmm. sessions, I manage a large group of people, and I've worked in hospitality in the gay community for nearly 15 to 20 years before my current role. So you, you learn to be able to kind of cope with being centre of attention when sometimes you don't really want to be yeah yeah there's that definitely ability to we always say turn it on turn it off you know like yeah. hey i might not be comfortable in this setting but i i know how to turn it on and be in that setting and some people do and that's a I, that's a major coping mechanism and i think what we talk about here is people who don't know how to turn it on if you are this and that and you're only that and you don't know how to bend or, or adapt to other situations, that can pigeonhole you very quickly into a certain role. So before we move on, on to Billy, so what I would have loved and what would have made me warm to this character a lot more, let's say if he was in the mess hall and he was having conversations with people, and then it showed him kind of walking back down to deck 15 and he kind of just exhaled and went, oh, you know, and he's back in his little comfortable solitude and you could see that he was really trying to mix with people but you know this was his preference of being on his own that would have made me actually see more of the things i like about him but yeah he was just he was just unpleasant yeah. in all environments <laughs> well uh let's move on to william telfer so uh, William Telfer, or Billy, as the doctor calls him, uh, is a known hypochondriac. Uh, Telfer habitually avoided assignments on away missions by getting the doctor declaring him medically unwell and therefore unfit for away duty. Uh, Commander Chicote, who as Voyagers first off, he had the duty of scheduling crew assignments, uh, put it very succinctly. 
when he remarks with annoyance that Telfer never went on away missions because he always seems to get a note from his doctor. So not through want of trying to expose him to away missions or something a little bit more, but he didn't fancy doing it. What do you think of that, Christos? Well, I think this guy's a lot easier to dissect than the prior. He's literally <laughs> a rewrite of Barkley. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's afraid of everything. He's given himself, you know, whether it's, you know, transporter psychosis or holodeck addiction, whatever. He's always got something going on. There's always something that keeps him from having to perform. And he, you know, he's, he's you know, we all, we all know hypochondriacs, right? They're just, you know, yeah. they are what they are. But, um, yeah, I felt like he was the least interesting of our three lower deckers. The, um, the interesting point you've just made about Barkley there, and it's only just something that's really occurred to me, but if you look at all three characters together, they're all different aspects of Barclay. So, you know, you've got the kind of the hypochondriac side of things. You've got the socially awkward, no belief in yourself. They're, they're like Barclay split three ways. Mm. So, yeah, I love that, Christos. Well, Barclay kept on getting written, too. Like, poor guy. I mean, he comes in with, I think, the first time we meet Barclay, he gets holodeck addiction. And then... And then we get like ninth degree Barkley and then we get transporter psychosis Barkley. <laughs> I mean, it's just like literally they keep giving this guy more problems. So, yeah, you're right. I think you're it, it's a good observation. I think they literally just pulled out a lot of these these traits that Barkley had. And everything, Mark. My question is, what does he do on the ship? I, I don't quite understand what his purpose was. Yeah. Another thing that really took me out of the episode and this happens throughout Voyager. So it's the concept of sick bay and the medical department or the medical staff on Voyager. So we've got the EMH, clearly. We had Kess. Obviously, she's long gone by this point. Um, Kess leaves. They get Tom Paris, the pilot, to actually do the nursing duty. So were are all of these medical officers wearing blue? So it was established in Seven's presentation that Billy was in the doctor's department, uh, cutting over the efficiency score for sick bay. So he's a very junior medical officer oh. doing what? But what do any of the junior oh. medical officers do? Like, obviously, we know why it never changed because it was about cast. And, you know, obviously, if Tom Paris is the backup nurse and we're not hiring another actor, blah, 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 we're giving more story there. But yes, you're right. You wouldn't take your pilot, who you need, and put him down in sickbay to be a backup nurse. You would, like, and if this guy, um, you know, Telfer is somewhat proficient in medical, and let's see, he knows how to use a medical tricorder and he's always researching stuff, you would almost put him in a, you know, he would be the one being. Uh, developed by the doctor full time to be medical staff. You know, that's another another way I would approach it. <laughs> so my question for both of you guys, because looking at a mental health perspective, um, I know that's really important and we've talked about it a little bit last week. But as we know, people that are hypochondriacs, it's, it's something that they can't help, really. It's a condition and they are worried about a lot of different things. And I'm wondering um, if either of you guys have experienced something in your life where you were afraid of this thing, but because of circumstances, you had to go and be put in a situation where you had to deal with this thing. And how did it work out for either of you guys? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the example that I've just cited about being an introvert, you know, when I was newly qualified, 
doing the role that I did, having to step up and present to a room of 100 people uh, would not only give me nerves, but fill me with fear. Um, there's been, you know, thank God my previous employer's not listening to this, but there's been days <laughs> where I would be off to do a safety inspection of a hotel. And I just, for whatever reason, wasn't feeling it that day. And I would pull over on the motorway and kind of basically call in sick, fake like uh, my car's broken down. I'm not going to get to work today. But really, it was just pure anxiety of, I can't people today. I can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's only happened once or yeah. twice. But sometimes that it, it's a bit of a cliche, but sometimes stepping outside your comfort zone and really pushing yourself is that kind of learning behavior of coping. Uh, and sometimes it's easier than others. There are some days you cannot do that. Um, your, your, your psyche won't allow you. But on the days you are feeling strong, to put yourself out of your comfort zone, do something and learn something new. They're the days that you really learn and that's how you grow as a person. Well said. I was actually gonna take a little bit of your example there, Kelvin. I mean, when I went into college at, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, my original major was to be a volcanologist. And when I kind of realized that a, a career in volcanology was probably gonna be met teaching at a university and looking for field work, you know, in my free time, um, I immediately like, oh, no, I don't want to teach. I don't see myself doing that. Oh, you have to get up in front of people and talk. And and even going and switching to business and going into my career, presenting in public, public speaking was always, 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 always something that scared the, you know, the Jesus out of me. Ultimately, you know, if you look at the 25 years now, but from the time I started college and where we are today, part of what I'm doing here in Hawaii is to give training over the course of a week to over 250 employees. Now it's like second nature and I almost kind of enjoy it. You can, wow. you can, um, you can now grow things and it's taken a long time to, to go from where I was at 18, 19 years old to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And self is very young as well. So, you know, looking at it purely from an age perspective, he he's here, a junior officer, probably his first posting. Uh, but unlike Harry Kim, who seems to have kind of jumped to, straight to a bridge officer, he is just someone who would have been in the background, uh, but clearly isn't coping very well with it all. This, I, I do find that, again, this ages the episode a little bit. When you look at old TV shows and you look at people clearly who've got mental illnesses and they just mm -hmm. kind of throw terms about like, oh, the, that's the crazy person. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't see that these days. It would be explored more and a bit more sympathetically. But just for the doctor just to kind of say, oh, he's a hypochondriac and he, he, he's, he's even afraid of treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that's aged the episode a lot. You... You know, you certainly wouldn't get that on Discovery, would you? Um, so yeah. you know, I was disappointed. But what I will say about Telfer is of the three characters, I think he probably had the best arc. He was afraid of what might happen, but clearly he's never had anything interesting happen to him. But then on the on, on the shuttle mission on the flyer, he literally has an alien beam inside him and uh, burst out of his neck. You know, that is something quite traumatic uh, to be afraid of. So it'd be interesting to see, had we seen more of the character, what was the fundamental change that that event had on him being a hypochondriac? Yeah. Did it cure him? Did it make him more confident? We we kind of just don't know. And that's one of the short shortfalls of this episode. One single intervention, is that enough? What happens to the characters next? 
Well, I feel like at, towards the end of the episode, uh, when they're coming back, they do briefly touch on it. And it seems because he starts explaining about how he feels really different. And I read into that as, you know, he is less of a hypochondriac after having gone through that. That's what I get out of it, which is what both of you guys were talking about in your personal stories where you're putting yourself out there and doing this thing that scares you is the one thing that sort of breaks down the wall of fear. So you're able to, to do it. So our, our final and third lower decker is uh, Tal Celeste um, during her time at Starfleet Academy. Celeste had a great difficulty with her enlistee training courses and had to work three times as hard as her classmates in order to keep up. She frequently had to spend all night cramming to pass. Uh, she believed the only reason she graduated from training was due to sympathy over the occupation of Bajor and the desire of Starfleet to have more Bajorans in service. Um, that's pretty loaded. So first mm. I'll start off with saying of the three, I found her the most annoying. Like I really? just, I found her to be pretty whiny. And it's like, part of me is just like, you know, what you want to say sometimes as a manager is just, just shut up and do the job. You know what I mean? And if, you know, quit your whining and do the job. You know what I mean? And I feel like she needs a little bit of that tough love kind of like just cut the shit and get it done. You know what I mean? And I feel like if she were a little bit more like that, you'd spend, you know, when you're second guessing yourself constantly, you're you're going to make mistakes. It's just what you do. She's so mm -hmm. she's got herself so worked up. You find a way to fail. You know, when you're when you think you're going to fail, you find a way to fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big part of the left. What do you guys think? I found Celeste of the three, the character I empathised the most with and enjoyed the most. Uh, the fact she's Bajoran it does it for me anyway. I, I, I love Bajorans uh, as a character species in Star Trek, but it was... I, I know what you mean, Christos. Um, nothing... I, I don't have time for those kind of people who constantly say oh after an exam oh i've failed i've failed and then they get the top mark and you're like oh, shut up but <laughs> she's clearly someone who needed guidance support uh, nurturing and I, again i i'm clearly i'm not a parent and i've got no de desire to be but it's that kind of you know if you constantly tell a child they're stupid then they will grow up thinking they're stupid so what kind of environment has she been in. You know, she's very young, so the, the kind of the occupation, it would have been like us and, you know, our parents or grandparents talking about the war. Yeah. It, she, would, she wouldn't really have lived it, lived it like that. But I was, what I really found quite distasteful in this episode was the attitude of the senior officers in basically stupid shaming her throughout the episode. Now, you can kind of expect the bluntness from Seven of Nine which we got a lot of when she was saying to Captain Janeway, you're making a mistake, don't take her, you'll have to check all her work, she'll fail. That's just seven being seven. But someone like Chakotay also saying, mm -hmm. you know, you know, she, she, she wouldn't even pass the proficiency test. It didn't seem like the most Starfleet behaviour. And we've seen yeah, it... a lot of really good role model behaviors in Starfleet. So I felt sorry for her. And there's also one last point for me is um, I, I spent a large part of my life working within hospitality. So that kind of 
coming down on you know just a waitress what what I, I can't do this job unless you need a waitress in the mess hall i always find that quite jarring because i've spent quite a lot of my life uh waiting tables when i was at college making yeah. money and that job is quite difficult in itself so i i felt for her i really did mark i really felt for her as well and i feel like in my family there's you know, a lot of history of people that have to work a little extra harder just to get to the same level as where other people are performing. Like, you know, my, my mother had to do that most of her life is just, you know, really study extra hard and work on things extra late and really cram just to like to pass things. You know, when she was in school and, I, you know, I had to do the same thing. And, you know, now I'm in a job that's requiring a completely different skill set than anything I've had to do in my adult life. And most days I go in, and it's a lot of math, which I haven't had to use, you know, before, and I'm being entrusted with a lot more things than I have before. You know, it's like every day I'm going in, and it's almost like I'm taking the SATs. And sometimes I feel like, you know, in the course of the day, my brain fluid's leaking out of my ears, and I'm really trying my best. But you know, I've been put in charge of this, you know, this thing here, and I, I am doing the best that I can. Uh, and so far, you know, I'm succeeding, but I feel like, you know, every day is a marathon at work. And I think, I feel like I get that with, with Celeste as well, uh, that every day for her, when she goes into work is kind of a marathon. And she must find it exhausting, that kind of mental anguish. And is this just a, not another example of a crew member who has not been assigned a role to suit her strengths clearly she's got good people skills she's a nice person she's communicative she's got friends you know is she the best person to be doing sensor analysis uh, and working with seven of nine uh, maybe she would be better in a more people uh, focused area uh, of work rather than something that's so heavily technical if she doesn't have that kind of skill set so yeah what do you think christos Two things. First and foremost, your your broccoli analogy. I'm gonna say the broccoli analogy because that you know, remember broccoli. Barkley was made fun of. They were called him Lieutenant Broccoli or whatever, mm -hmm. and even some of the senior staff in TNG was participating. So there's that dumb shaming again, kind of coming up, and even um, even like, it was accidental. Yes, in Picard's case, it was accidental. But hey, that, that's what's bad about that stuff. You mm -hmm. can't you can't nickname people behind their back because um, it will end up biting you in the butt. Secondly, you know, I feel like Janeway cracked her like pretty quickly and spot on to say that, hey, one of the reasons you're so valuable as a crew member is maybe you do make mistakes here and there, but you have you have a way of seeing things and bringing valuable insight to a an issue or a problem. So automatically, Janeway is already cracked the nut to figure out how she adds value to the team. And so when you find what there's someone's good at, you put them into that role and put them in a position to explore that further. Mm -hmm. That's why I said this episode continually makes our senior staff look bad and then sets up Janeway to have to be the good shepherd. That's maybe what we're, you know, what we're doing here. But um, yeah, like she was just failed by the rest. And like I said, Janeway figures out automatically how she brings value. We did hear her talk about like, well, if I were if Voyager were still in the Alpha Quadrant in a regular, you know, a regular ship, you know, she would have been pushed out a long time ago. But remember something, Voyager would have had a different senior staff had it still been in the Alpha Quadrant. You wouldn't have had Balana and Chakotay. 
you would have had a CMO, you would have, you know, there was a lot of people that got replaced because of Voyager circumstances. So, mm -hmm. Mark, I think that the way that Janeway approached it, like you were saying, with focusing on the things that she does well, is something that has made me be able to be successful in the position that I'm in now at work. Because I don't, like I said, every day is kind of a marathon with some of the things that I'm doing. But instead of beating myself up about it, about these things that I am struggling with, I focus on the things that I am doing really well, and especially compared to the person that was in the position before me, who I've told was very much like a Barclay character and couldn't talk to anybody, right? And didn't, even the team like that I'm running right now, he wouldn't associate with and didn't really have conversations with. He was sort of an introvert. And so I make it a point to try to engage with everybody, get to know everybody, develop their skills. Uh, if somebody shows an interest in something, I help to foster that interest and try to be the best manager I can. So, you know, maybe I'm, you know, struggle in some areas, but I will get there. But I try to focus my attention on the things that I'm doing well. And um, I think that that's something that uh, is a good lesson for all of us. If we're put in a situation where maybe we feel out of our comfort zone, okay, sure. But what do we bring to the table that somebody saw in us that, uh, you know, that we can focus on, you know, for the positive? Good points. Are we going to take things on to our assimilations and regenerations for this episode now, Mark? Absolutely. So our listeners probably remember assimilations and regenerations. This is the, uh, the part of the episode where we talk about things that we like, which are assimilated, or things that we dislike, which are getting sent back to the regeneration chamber. So, yeah, let's go over some assimilations and regenerations. I want to throw this out there first and foremost. I love the Delta Flyer as a ship. I think it was such a cool idea to sort of take pieces of broken down shuttles, rebuild something, use some Borg technology that they picked up there uh, along the journey, and uh, create something really new. And the person they had doing it, of course, was Tom Paris, who is really into uh, hot rods and classic design and, uh, and antiques and things. And I was like, okay, that... That's cool. What a better, you couldn't have found a better person to design it because the Delta Flyer is kind of a hot rod. Indeed. Um, Mark, I, I heard your recent appearance on the uh, Trexperts quiz <laughs> where you were gushing over the Delta Flyer yeah. as, as a, a great ship. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you got your Delta Flyer fix in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the Delta Flyer, and um, I believe it's a season five episode where they actually build it. Mm. And one of the things about when they built the Delta Flyer, I like the CGI that they kind of sh actually showed it in the shuttle bay under construction, mm. which kind of brings me to like the really cool CGI in this episode, starting off with the, the pan into Janeway's ready room. And then obviously eventually seeing in through a window down at the very, very bottom of the secondary hall. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to point out here was as, as, as a Trekkie that was watching TNG from year one in 1987 to this roughly being about 12 years later or so, I just remember being how excited I, how excited I was at how the CGI and the special effects were progressing in star trek over mm -hmm. the years like you could never have you never would have seen i mean they did 
I think they did this view once, maybe like in the premiere episode of TNG with Picard kind of being at the ready room window, but it wasn't even at this level of coolness and detail or looking realistic. It was just, um, I just remember like, wow, we're really getting places and we're seeing so much more. Yeah. It gives such great uh, scope and scale to Voyager itself as a ship when you zoomed into that window with Janeway holding the coffee mug and just to kind of know that that's a, that's a view that we've seen countless times from the inside looking out and here is the reverse. Uh, only this morning I, I, I was just watching TNG lay in bed with my morning coffee and just on the opening credits of TNG where the Enterprise comes up and you can kind of see someone in the observation lounge walking behind a chair. And and it, it's it's kind of that, but just so souped up of yeah. this is what we can do now or, or they could do then. And yeah, it was it was great. And even the, the bits in between the zoom in to Janeway and zoom out from uh, Haran having kind of like the turbo lifts almost as the backbone of the ship with Celeste going from astrometrics down to engineering on deck 11 and then the ensign on deck 11 going down to deck 15. I, I, I just love that. It almost made the ship feel like a person or, or the character that it often gets described as the ship being the extra character in the cast for each show. Yeah. Well, I think they blew a lot of the budget on that CGI. That's why they spent the rest of the episode uh, with these, not the main cast, these people that they could pay less, and they're on one <laughs> set, essentially. So oh. <laughs> that probably helped. Well, no, I think I think the main cast gets paid no matter what. Oh, I that's think, true. You know, that's, that, that's, that's the one thing. But you're right. I think you do see some... Like there's there's more they could have showed with the Delta Flyer part of the episode that they didn't show because you're right they probably blew a lot of their budget with those opening special effects <laughs> but I think that just those two shots really show um, scale and kind of puts that whole lower deck mentality into play from Janeway being the queen at the top too uh, <laughs> someone literally someone literally at the bottom of the ship so top to bottom whatever you call it. I do have a regeneration I want to throw out, uh, which is why can't Telfer have a medical tricorder? Like, I don't know. What's what's the harm? I, if he wants to learn more, why can't he have access to the medical tricorder? Like, does he have Actually, to buy one? There's no money. Officer. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. I, I think that comment is being made from a doctor slash counselor type um point of view to say like you know have you ever heard um have you ever heard some a doctor tell you to get 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 off of webmd or whatever mm. but trying to self-diagnose yourself okay. things like that stop it you know let me do my job you know you're you're obviously a hypochondriac which would be very blunt and you're like you getting a medical tricorder is only throwing fuel on a fire because now you're you're you know this guy's like I got a, I'm point two up on a fever. I got this disease. Uh, so like, let's stop taking our temperature every five minutes. You know what I mean? So okay. that I think is where that comment comes from. I think it normally would not be a problem for any crew member to have a medical tricorder, but because he's not, he's using it in a way that's detrimental to his mental health. He's doctor has his counselor slash doctor. He's saying you shouldn't have one. Yeah. Cause he didn't, for me. Same, he didn't take the same <laughs> attitude with seven of nine. 
uh, at the start mm. of Relativity when she diagnosed herself with the sensory aphasia uh, issue. Uh, he was almost joking, saying, you know, next time come and see me, and uh, you know, don't consult the database. And she says, you are the database. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, clearly he finds it funny. So yeah, maybe Christos, he must, he must be saying from a personal perspective, it's just not good for your mental health, but you are scanning yourself. I have a, a um, an assimilation for this episode and quite an observation of was this an example of Janeway being her best as we know her as a character in that there's a huge amount of foreshadowing in this episode of uh, what the entire premise of Star Trek Prodigy is of his hologram Janeway guiding all of these young minds to do better and be more Starfleet. And, and that's exactly what Janeway is doing in this episode for these young junior officers. So was it'd be interesting to know, um, were the creators of Prodigy inspired by this particular episode of Voyager? I don't see how they could not be. And I'm going to do a little jumper and tie two things here together here. Um, I believe it's in our trivia section, but uh, Kate Mulgrew identified Good Shepherd as one of her favorite Voyager uh, episodes altogether that, you know, Good Shepherd was really Janeway at her best, identifying Janeway's commitment to her ship and her crew as one of her highlight traits. She just tries, she keeps trying, she never gives up her heart in any situation and she's always prepared to go down first. I think if you tie your comments and that trivia together, it's like, it's the perfect comment. Yes, even Kate Mulgrew loved this episode and obviously it stuck with her long after voyager ended and you can't help but wonder that when they were they were sitting down and mapping out prodigy that that this episode had to have been talked about as this is how hologram janeway would be and maybe even admiral janeway later mm -hmm. to that it would be more of this yeah which makes me wonder actually because my regeneration for this episode is the fact that it is just so episodic, you know, final scene, end of Acts 4, Janeway, job done, I've got them all home, great, uh, you're not a hypochondriac anymore, you're not stupid anymore, you don't hate pra uh, practice anymore, you know, in the real world, things don't happen like that, it's a process, you've got to keep mm. it moving, but, the, you know, everyone... Everyone talks about kind of Discovery and Picard, how, you know, Strange New Worlds returning to the episodic nature has been much desired and everyone prefers it. But let's not forget, episodic shows did have this history of just wrapping things up never to be heard of again. Uh, my favourite is oh, yeah. Bolanna's Depression episode. You know, next episode, oh, I'm not depressed anymore. Great. Um, so, yeah, yeah what... Maybe, Prod maybe Prodigy was just a way of having an extended version of this episode that you could continually inspire and see actual growth rather than just episode done, Janeway's dealt with the situation, let's get back to the Borg. I do want to come to the defense of Strange New Worlds for a second, and I feel like they're taking the Deep Space Nine approach a little bit, where they are episodic, but they don't forget things. And so... It's it's I think the best the best of both worlds. In both worlds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Strange New Worlds has the benefit really of the fact that okay, it's a streaming show and it can be binged or you are watching week to week, so you're going to consistently get your episodes. 
the fear always was for all of these 90s shows that viewers might not get all the episodes in order or certain episodes not might get shown in certain markets for whatever reason or they could be preempted for reasons. Remember Voyager used to get preempted by sports um, locally hmm. when in, in my market where I was growing up. And then it would be like Saturday afternoon at two o'clock, they'd be showing it as a makeup or something like that. So I get that. Voyager was trying, but they could have done more. I mean, really, they would touch on these things. Like, you're, you're right, character development of secondary crew members could have been a, a seven-season arc and part of the show. And they, it's like they try and they try. And, you know, um, I do agree. It does get wrapped up. It's like when Worf, you know, gets paralyzed in epics and, you know, next, next you know, and he's got it literally <laughs> next week, he's back on the, he's back on the mission or everything like mission of the week. It's a reset every week. That's how it's usually referred to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Things are reset and every, everything's fine. Voyager started feeling more serialized to, toward the, the last few seasons from anything from like making start, making contact with Starfleet and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the arc to get them home kind of started in season five with Pathfinder and the show started becoming a little bit more serialized and it should have been. I mean, you think about it, 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 it just should have been, but I get why it wasn't because it wasn't, you had to wrap up your story and move on. Um, one last regeneration from me was, and I know Mark, you touched on this at the top of the episode here about how Voyager only had like a hundred, 120, 150, uh, people on the ship but i think a real failing of this episode was how late it came into voyager's run so mm. you know the end of season six it just seemed very obvious that these characters just seem to show up from nowhere now as an adult i know that you to get the actors back would have been expensive uh, to give uh, credit or money to the original writer of a previous episode who invented a lower decker character to then use them again is expensive. So I can see why they've done it. But Voyager was very good at just randomly saying crew members' names that you never see. So, you know, Parsons, Ashmore, Nicoletti, all of these people that were there in the background of Voyager that you knew worked in different departments, they could have just cast Susan Nicoletti or Ensign Ashmore or all these people that Neelix talks about in the mess hall. Or the Delaney sisters? Exactly. Well, we do see the Del Delaney sisters what? once. In uh, 30 days. Uh, in the Tom Paris episode, where they're uh, in the Captain Proton scenario. But yeah, there's a, the, it is missed. And even if they just brought maybe one of the characters back, like they brought Chell from Learning Curve back in Season 7, they could have gone to Learning Curve and maybe taken that really shy... Bajoran guy who was in the episode there and see, I wouldn't have been mad if they recast the character, if I'm being honest. But yeah, I think it was just a bit of a miss. Uh, you're shaking your head about the recast. Was that because he was quite hot, Christos? <laughs> no, I just hate recasts in general. I feel like oh, really? yeah, it just drives me nuts. I just don't like it. It's like, it takes me out of it. You see that oh, there's a, many God. characters. Like, for example, on, on the Golden Girls, there's many characters that just kept on getting recapped in order to keep bringing <laughs> the characters back. And sometimes you don't even realize it's the same character. Um, and then, you know, our most famous recast, of course, was uh, Savic. And that even I don't even like that. Yeah, well, so you're not a fan of Tora Zial, then? 
she had about True. four. That's another one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then on Star Trek Picard, the recast of that uh, cyberneticist. Yeah, it's a little bit easier to recast people who are in heavy makeup, but um, <laughs> I think you can do it. I think you can do it a little bit more believably. But yeah, it just drives me nuts. And you're talking about the cyberneticist uh, Mark um, from Measure of a Man. What's his name? Yeah, that one. Everybody knows my memory's not good. I don't know your excuse. <laughs> Come on, uh, the Bruce Myers. Maddox, yes, yes. There I, we go. I need a second cup of coffee. That's my problem. Okay. I find it like weird. I know it, it was done for plot and for exposition, but the fact that we're hand walking orders with a pad down a turbo lift and delivering it to deck 15, what would they do in a pinch if that like in an emergency, if you needed a power transfer, I would just think that would be completely automated, especially being able to be automated through engineering. Now, like maybe if systems were broken and we were in an emergency and the ship was badly damaged, you might have to do a manual process like that. But I found it very, 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 very like jarring that even in 97 or 98, when this episode was eight or maybe 99, uh, that they would think that that's how this would run. Yeah, it really took me out the episode when I saw this. And uh, I think it was mainly because of the the plot device of kind of flowing from the ship from deck one down to deck 15, that they had all of the, the crew members do all the donkey work, walking with the pads so yeah. you could get from Janeway's ready room down to deck 15 um, kind of power right. transfer. So, but you're right. Yeah. Why would you just send someone off on a 20 minute walk when you can just send a text message? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the episode. It reminds me of an encounter at, point when Picard orders print out on all decks, you know, like really they have printers sitting on all decks, you know, to print paper for uh, an order. So it, it's almost like a a sign of the times where they weren't quite envisioning the technology going yeah. further because we already could do better than that in 2023. Yeah. So should we jump into some trivia, guys? Oh, let's love the trivia. So much like TNG's lower decks, almost none of the featured characters make another appearance during the course of the series, as we've been talking about. Tal Celis is the only character to later reappear in the episode The Haunting of Deck 12. Hmm. Excellent. And uh, this, as, as I've mentioned previously, this episode can be compared to TNG's lower decks and the first season episode of Voyager Learning Curve in that they feature low-ranking crew with less focus on the main characters. Uh, interesting, the latter episode centered on several ex-Maquis crew who were performing below standards, whereas this episode focuses on underperforming Starfleet personnel instead. I forgot about that episode, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like Voyager kind of missed a little bit of a mark here. They could have done... I mean, we're, talking about under, we're talking about underperforming, mm -hmm. but... TNG had a really good job of bringing in other recurring people, like like speaking of lower decks, uh, Ogawa. How many episodes is Ogawa in as Beverly's, you know, assistant nurse, whatever? It helped mm -hmm. bring continuity. Why wouldn't there be seen? And there's uh, one of the guys that's also in Sick Bay. I don't think he ever speaks. Maybe he doesn't. Oh, Martinez. Bless him. Yeah. He goes back to Pulaski days and all the way through to the end and just kind yeah. of. He's uh, he's he's there with. And I just watched um, Relics, I think, the other day, or Schisms, Schisms, and I was like, oh, there he is again. So yeah, I think Voyager could have done more with, you know, mm -hmm. bring identifying some of these people and having them be there, and it would have made more sense. 
because people aren't rotating on and off Voyager like they could have been the Enterprise. Yeah. Well, um, we had touched on the CGI earlier. We're all in love with that. Uh, in the teaser, when the camera zooms from space to the captain's ready room, several figures can be seen in the officer's mess. There are two in red-shouldered Starfleet uniforms and one in a yellow-shouldered uniform. One is also in what appears to be Seven's blue jumpsuit, and at least two others in identifiable costumes. So that was kind of cool. I loved that you saw... Not only action happening in one of the windows, but in multiple windows as the camera is headed towards the Voyager. So your eyes over here, your eyes over there, no matter where you look, something's happening on the ship. So that was that was kind of cool. I've never noticed that before. I think that's a great piece of trivia. Yeah. The window that Crewman Heron looks out of in, in the first scene is not a miniature or CGI model Voyager. It was added specifically for the episode. In later shots of Voyager's underside, the window is not there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we all, I mean, I definitely get the dramatic effect of showing it, and we talked about why they show it. But, yes, it does not make any sense why you would compromise a ship's hull to add that little viewport right there that's an, an unnecessary part of the ship. Yeah. I think the really cool thing when we didn't talk about is the fact that they showed Deck 15 and they show how much smaller it is and compact and just more claustrophobic because it is considered a lesser part of the ship and it's more about functionality. It's almost more like Jeffrey's tubes down there than it mm, is, yeah. you know, cor corridors. And um, it was very jarring. That, that I thought the dramatic effect of showing that just how little Janeway's probably ever been to Deck 15 and how much she's probably not visited Deck 15 over the course of six seasons at that point it, for me, I thought that was really good at showing that whole falling through the cracks thing. It's like even the captain never goes to deck fifteen. It's not like it's the Enterprise D where you've got like crap loads of deck. Voyager's not that big compared to say mm -hmm. the Enterprise. And the fact that the captain is like, oh shoot, when's the last time I was down here? Probably <laughs> right before we left space dock in in episode one. Yeah. Uh, I thought that that was a really good um, plot device. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, as we were talking about the scale of the ship earlier. When you've got Heron sat there right on the bottom of the ship, um, I'm reminding of the episode Timeless where they crashed onto the ice moon, and Harry yeah. and Chicote said decks thirteen to fifteen have been compacted. So, ouch! Poor Heron, bang straight down. He dead. Um, so a little bit more trivia here, and again, something I, I didn't know this. This is fantastic. The equations that are shown uh, on the pad when Tom Paris checks in with Heron in the mess hall um, are real equations, and they are adapted from the fundamentals of aerodynamics. Oh, I beg your pardon, astrodynamics, uh, which is a 1971 book developed by the U.S. Air Force Academy. How cool is that, that it's a real equation? Yeah, it looks like gobbledygook but it actually means something would have been fun can to hear Amy's imagine, take on that <laughs> can, yeah can you imagine if they had just used gobbledygook you know what we're like us trekkies we'd have been yeah. saying that's nonsense that isn't a real aerodynamic equation <laughs> the library would have been open <laughs> absolutely during a brief cut inside crewman heron's escape pod he manipulates an elkar's terminal that looks like a conventional LCD computer monitor instead of the backlit overlays used for most L cars set pieces. 
a black mouse or cursor can be seen moving around the screen, which I didn't notice, but I'm going to go back and pause that. I want to see that. I knew this one. This one's quite infamous. <laughs> so Celeste is referred to simply as Celeste by both Janeway and Telfer. According to the Bajoran Naming Convention in Ensign Row, this would be her individual name. So wouldn't she be Tal? She would, Shouldn't well, she, she have been referred to as Tal? She'd be Ensign Tal or Crewman Tal. Is it a yeah. little bit over-familiar? Because even Seven calls her Celeste all the time, and she is yeah, just because it's like Celeste. Yeah, I mean, how many times do you hear them say Nerys? Nerys was only used in the most, like, you know, more intimate settings and, like, you know, uh, very familiar friendships. So I, yeah, I think that was a... Um, yeah, a little point. over I think familiar. And let's face it, even Kai Wynn only got an army when uh, Gulda Cat was uh, having his way with her. Mm. <laughs> Whenever I think of that, I think of Lursa and Bator in Star Trek Generations looking at Beverly. <laughs> so repulsive. Oh, human females are so repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> You'd get a bonus for <laughs> experts quiz for that impression. Yeah, I love it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Christos, you'll like this one. A photon torpedo is used in this episode, one having previously been used in Child's Play. This brings the total number of torpedoes confirmed to have been used by Voyager over the course of the series to 63 a total of which exceeds the irreplaceable complement of 38 that been established by Chakotay in the first season episode, The Cloud. Yeah, um, we've talked about this before, for sure. Um, I always re- refer viewers back to that uh, YouTube video that somebody um, infamously made that counts every time we see a torpedo fired in Voyager. I mean, we just got to chuck it up to somewhere along the lines. They figured it out how to make more. I mean... Come on, Tuvok. You know, we see that we, we see Prodigy able to make shuttlecraft. I mean, why wouldn't they have been able to figure out how to make some torpedoes along the way? Yeah. Yeah. They can make a new warp core for the Delta Flyer. I'm sure they can make a torpedo. We literally, yeah. How many shuttles like come out of nowhere on Voyager? I mean, that's another video you can make too. But like, and then they literally made the Delta Flyer, which, you know, so yeah, we're going to say they figured out how to make more. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just put it out there? That pedantic person obsessed with continuity who made that Voyager torpedo video was not me. Nah. Bless whoever. It's, it's cool to watch, there. though. It is great. It's, it's great cool to, to watch. watch. Credit to uh, whoever did make it. Uh, final piece of trivia that we've got here is a, uh, a secret famous guest star. So we have Crewman Mitchell, who greets Janeway in Act 1, uh, down on Deck 15, is actually played by Tom Morello, who's a, a guitarist in Rage Against the Machine, an audio slave. So in 1998, Morello, who is a, a big fan of Star Trek, contacted series producer Rick Berman, asking for a cameo in Star Trek Insurrection. Uh, Berman, whose sons was a big Rage Against the Machine fan, um, agreed, although uh, Morello was one of the many aliens in a crowd shot in Insurrection. Uh, He was later hired in January 1999 to appear as a human in this episode, Good Shepherd. So while Morello did only have a few lines as Crewman Mitchell, uh, Berman commented that he did a great job and it was a little pick-me-up for everyone, uh, everyone who knew 
I would guess. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the Crown Prince of Jordan appearing in the earlier Voyager episode, uh, just randomly in the corridor. Yeah. So yeah, if you're famous, you can don a blue uniform and get in there. It appears in Voyager. In the anyway, Rock, I need Dwayne the Rock I Johnson. Get... <laughs> yeah. Well, he had a whole more like a more of a actual role in that episode. Mm. That, was, that was more more than a cameo. But you're right. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that just you know would show up here and there, uh, astronauts and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I need. To, I need to get. I need to get famous for something so I can get a cameo. <laughs> well, everybody, final thoughts. For me, I like I said at the beginning, I really, really liked this episode. I know we have we 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 literally dissected that one this episode really good today, but uh, and found some uh, nitpicks and whatnot. But at the end of the day. It is a unconventional episode. It's a change from the norm. It focuses more on secondary characters than it does our, our our regular cast. And I think in a show that you know was pumping out twenty six episodes a year, it was a a really cool welcome break uh, in a different different point of view to look at. And very much like we said, the lower decks of Voyager. Calvin, what do you think? Over the last few weeks with some of the subjects we've been covering, uh, my final thoughts have often been uh, that the episode has had a redemption. Uh, whereas this episode, for me, I've always liked it. Um, as you said, uh, Christos, it, it was a welcome change of pace. It was something new. Um, it was a good, you know, Janeway-focused episode. So I was excited when this episode was coming up on our rewatch list for discussion because I was coming into the show with a lot to say about it and saying so my opinion hasn't changed on the episode it was good then it's good now maybe a couple of little bits have aged but you know hey a lot's changed in the world so yeah i i'm i'm really really glad that we got the chance and the opportunity to uh flesh out this episode a little bit more it was uh, a really good effort by voyager i really enjoyed the episode as well going into it i didn't necessarily remember the episode until I started the rewatch and I was like, oh yeah, this is a really good one. Um, I think we all made a lot of good points here, especially about, you know, the relatability of some of these minor characters, uh, our desire to, you know, possibly have seen more of them. But overall, it's a great standalone sort of story adventure. Uh, love the CGI in it, love the use of the Delta Flyer. I feel like it was a fun episode. And I think like a lot of Star Trek, uh, there is a message and a meaning to this. Uh, and especially, you know, we brought up a lot about, you know, managing people in this episode. Uh, and so there can be a lot to, you know, uh, uncover there uh, for that topic. Yeah. You know, one final thought I want to like point out and make that we didn't talk about is, you know, this episode like i said when i was watching it yesterday it reminded me like why i love janeway so much and we talked about obviously this inspiring lower or prodigy probably and whatnot but you know janeway was janeway and you know you know some of the some of the lines she has almost brought me to tears again watching yesterday although everyone knows i can be a little emo the one thought i had had that we was that i don't think picard or cisco would necessarily have done what janeway did here um, they just would have pushed back on their people to be better leaders. Janeway took the responsibility and, and went and did it. So um, kudos to Janeway. Well done, Janeway. Picard just sent Sita Jaxer off on a dangerous missile all by herself. <laughs> I'm not killed. So, yeah, never mind. Counselor Troy, go, go, Counselor Troy, go fix this. <laughs> <laughs>
so next week we have our uh, our new episode will be on our, our series evolution of a species part one we'll be talking about the evolution of the andorians as a species in star trek i'm so excited for and this what a long yeah. history there yeah this is going to be great uh because they have appeared in have they appeared in every iteration of trek at one point or another because we did have them briefly in um tng they were in tos obviously uh we've had them in discovery i don't know were they they weren't on deep space nine probably or voyage i don't think they were on deep space nine unless they were a background character in quarks and they were only on tng as one of Lal's possible um kind of genders yeah almost like an easter egg in tng Yeah. yeah they really came to life in enterprise Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Shran, definitely. A lot to talk about there. I think that conversation definitely will probably be very enterprise focused. Mm. We would love to hear what you thought of today's episode and hope you'll join our Facebook group, the BQN Collective, to continue our discussion there. You can also tweet your thoughts at AllGoodPod. Please follow the network on Twitter and Instagram at BQM Podcasts. We've also partnered with our friends at the Fandom Podcast Network, where you can find us by searching the Master Feed. So, Christos, where can people find you when you are not developing your team to the best of their abilities? Oh, you can find me on my other podcast, What's the T-Bev here on the BQN Network? And also find me on Twitter and Instagram at GreekGeekSD. Kelvin, where can people find you when you're not spending your whole day staring out a viewport on Deck 15? <laughs> I would never be doing that. I'm, I'm far more sociable. Uh, but when I'm not uh, hiding away on Deck 15, you can uh, find me on Facebook here in the BQN Facebook group. Or you can find me directly on Instagram or Twitter at Kelvin's Timeline. And Mark, where can people find you when you're not being inhabited by dark matter life forms? <laughs> uh, well, when I'm not doing that, that would be very exciting and also terrifying. Uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me also in the BQN Collective uh, Facebook page. You can find me on Twitter at markwhite 207 and if you become a patron of the network on Patreon, you can listen to my show, It's Green. So, please hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show. You can also follow the network, uh, all of the network's podcasts with our master feed by searching BQN. This way you won't miss any of our fine shows like Union Federation, Galaxy Class, History with the Zalagis, Infinite Diversity, Mickey's Marvels, Sasquatch, What's the T-Bev, and Trexpert's Quiz. At this time, we would like to thank our associate producers, Mahedran Radhakrishnan and Tim Cooper. A special thanks to Graham Kelly for our opening and closing music, and Mark White for our artwork each and every week. Thanks, Mark. If you'd like to help keep uh, our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
We will add you to the Hive Mind Facebook group so you can enjoy It's Green, Amy's Math Moments and other network perks. With a monthly subscription of $5 or more, you can join our meetings on the Hive Mind Roundtable Discussion on the second Saturday of each month. Visit patreon.com forward slash BQN to get all the details and watch your messages. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us as we search out all good things.